Well, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 4. So as we come to our passage today, which is Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, we see Paul's final charge to the Colossians. And then we'll have another um, section to work through next week where Paul lists a number of people that he's been traveling with and sends greetings, so we'll finish up next week with that. But today we come to Paul's final charge to the Colossians. In just these five verses, we're going to see references to prayer, alertness, thanksgiving, preaching the mystery of Christ, walking in wisdom toward outsiders, and using grace when we respond to them. So it's amazing to see the number of things that Paul's going to pack into just these five verses. As I spend time working through this, I've been... um, trying to sort of coordinate, I don't always name or title our teaching sessions, but as you have probably seen already, each one of the messages from Colossians has started with a particular thought or a theme followed by found in Jesus Christ. And so today I titled this, The New Determination Found in Jesus Christ. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 4 verses 2 through 6. And we'll talk briefly about the outline, and then we'll get into our text this morning. But Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door for the word, so that you may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how how you should respond to each person. So our outline today, verse 2, we're going to see the determination to stand firm in Christ. So the first thing we'll see, verse 2, the determination to stand firm in Christ Verses 3 through 4, we're going to see the determination to pray for those who preach Jesus Christ. And then finally, in verses 5 and 6, we're going to see the determination to live as a testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and get into that first point there. Verse 2. Paul called the Colossians to be determined to stand firm in their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just reread verse 2. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. That's a simple imperative. To devote ourselves to something means to give ourselves to it, to be committed to it, to persist in it. All of those things are found in that idea of devoting ourselves to something. If you're devoted to a particular hobby, it means you spend time doing that. If you're devoted to a skill or a task, you spend time honing that task, working on it. And that's the very idea that comes from this. We're to devote ourselves to prayer, which means we're to be committed to it, continuing in it, persisting in it. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Jump down to verse 17. It's very simple here. We'll start in verse 16. Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. That's the idea of devoting ourselves to something. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What we see here is that this idea of being devoted to prayer, to be persisting in prayer, to commit ourselves to prayer, and to be always praying, is something Paul says is God's will for our life. 
But you notice, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 2, Paul's focus isn't as much on prayer specifically as it is something else. Notice what he says in the second half of that. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So he says, to devote ourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, in prayer, with thanksgiving. Now, there's a couple of ways we could look at this. One would be as Paul simply saying, stay awake when you pray. How many of you are like my wife? Who isn't that true? Have a difficulty praying and staying awake? That's true for many. I am one who, um, I have my prayer time in the morning, so I wake up every morning. I give my alarm, basically give myself about 30 minutes. So I set my alarm about 30 minutes before I want to get up in the morning, but then I have it set to go back off every five minutes. Why? Because sometimes I will start to doze, and then the alarm goes off again, and it's one of the ways that it keeps me awake. So that's one way to look at this, but I don't believe that's what Paul is really doing, because the idea here is that we're keeping alert because of the prayer. It is the prayer that is helping us to remain alert. And so it's a little bit opposite. It isn't, well, you better stay awake while you pray. It's pray so that you can stay awake. Stay alert. Keep your eyes on things. So the question is, what exactly are we to be keeping alert in? Why is it that we need to stay alert? What's interesting is that the call to remain alert occurs in at least ten different New Testament passages. And it revolves around three primary categories, three things that we are told as Christians to remain alert or stay alert in. The first one, the most common, is that we're to be alert Anybody know what it is? For the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, Dustin actually covered this a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the virgins. Five times Jesus reminds us to remain alert for his coming. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, jump down into verse 42. He says this, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day the Lord, your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So we are to be ready and alert for when Jesus comes. Now, there's this idea within evangelical circles of the imminency of Jesus Christ's return, which means he can return at any moment. I'm not one who subscribes to that specifically. The Bible declares certain things must happen before Jesus Christ returns because when Jesus Christ returns, the wrath of God ultimately begins. The church will be raptured from that, but we are told that as we see things happening, we are always to be alert because it could come at any time. And Jesus lays that out in his Olivet Discourse. So it's not that Jesus might show up as we walk through this door, but we are to always be alert and ready, paying attention to what is going on in the world around us, knowing that at any moment, things can move very rapidly. And the Lord could ultimately return to rapture his church. And so that's exactly what... He tells us here in Matthew chapter 24 that we are to be ready. We don't know exactly when that's going to be. When I was in seminary, I've told you this before, there's a whole section in the library dedicated to eschatology. And one thing our professor reminded us of is he said, every one of the men 
that has written books and has them in that library, that has predicted the, the date and the time of Jesus Christ returning, they all have one thing in common. They're all wrong. <laughs> because he still hadn't come back yet while I was in seminary. So we are told here to be on alert because we don't exactly know. He didn't say, I'll be back on this date and this time. Set your calendars. Turn to Matthew chapter 25, verse 13. Repeats it. Truly I say to you, I do not know you, and that's the description of what Dustin covered for us with the parable of the ten virgins, and then from there he goes into this. Be on alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Jesus also says the same thing in Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 21. Jesus reminded us as disciples that we are always to be ready, waiting for his return. Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, go ahead and turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We start at verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, meaning Paul had already taught them on this, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. The day of the Lord would not overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be on alert and be sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are also doing. We are to be on alert, waiting for Christ to return. We don't know exactly when it will be. The Bible does lay out things we are to look for, things we, are, we should see. In fact, you get into the Olivet Discourse and he talks about wars and rumors of wars and all sorts of other things that will take place leading up to that we are to be aware of and when we see those things, we are to be prepared. How many of you have been looking at what's happening in Israel lately? You know, there were anywhere from 300 to 800,000 people that protested in London, what, yesterday or the day before? Pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian protesters condemning Israel for defending itself. Today they're expecting at least 300,000 to maybe 500,000, I believe it's in Germany, for very similar protests. We've seen here what's been happening with our university campuses and other things, calling evil good and good evil. Is this what Jesus talked about when he said there will be wars and rumors of wars? We, we don't know exactly, but we should be on alert. We don't know what this will lead to. Will this lead to world war? We don't know. But Jesus did say these are the things we should look to. That little tiny plot of land known as Israel is the center of it all. It's the center of God's redemptive plan, even now to this day. He will accomplish what he promised he will accomplish. And some of the things he said will happen are all described in great detail in the book of Revelation, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Daniel. These are all things we've been told. Look for these things. Be prepared. Be ready. Because we don't know. 
People in, with World War I wondered the same thing. Back in 1948, they wondered the same thing when the five Arab nations all attacked Israel. They all thought this is the end. It wasn't quite. In 1967, when the Arab nations decided to attack Israel again, everybody wondered, is this the end? It quite wasn't, but it always could be. And this may be. We don't know for sure. There are certain things that have to probably be laid in place, but they can be laid in place very rapidly. People have said, well, the temple's got to be rebuilt yet, folks. It can't happen until, you know, it doesn't take all that long to build a temple when you're Israel because they've been planning for it for years. It wouldn't be unprecedented for Israel to decide, you know what, we're done with this stuff. We're taking Jerusalem. We're wiping the Dome of the Rock off. And it's possible that none of the Arab nations could do anything about it because if that's part of God's plan, he'll wipe them out too. And it doesn't take them long to build a temple when they're dedicated to do it. And so people have said, oh, we don't have to worry quite yet. No, folks, we don't know. Things can move very rapidly. It may be, it may not, but we are always to be ready, and Jesus told us to be ready to see him in the sky. And we know that that return of Christ happens in two phases. There's the rapture of the church. There's the second coming where he takes his throne. And we went through our eschatology series. I played all that out. Um... I'm thinking that once it all begins, we'll be able to watch part of that and see part of it unfold before the Lord takes us away in the rapture. may mean some challenging times for us. But the reality of it is, we're to be looking. We're to be waiting. We're to always be on alert. So that's the first category. The second category is to be on alert for the attack of our adversary, the devil. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 8 through 9. He says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So Paul or Peter tells us to be on the alert for our our enemy, Satan. Jesus warned Peter that Satan was out there wanting to sift him like wheat. So the second category is that we're to be on alert, knowing how the devil works and that he's always out to get us. The third and final category is to be on alert to stand firm in our faith. So we have this idea of Always being alert for the return of Christ. Always being on alert for the way the devil operates. But then lastly, that we be on alert for ourselves to stand firm in our faith. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 26, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We ought to be always on the alert of our own struggles and the things that we are tempted by and... I think as we look at what's happening in the world today, there is much that we might very well be tempted by. We oftentimes think of temptation and that internal thing, but a time will come where we may very well be tempted in our faith to remain faithful. I was telling Katie as we drove here today, there was um, Jane Curtis, I believe it was. There was some big Hollywood award show celebrating the actors and actresses who have come out over time. Um, the whole LGBTQ thing, and she got up and she just blasted Christians. 
You know, I mean, hoping that someday our voice gets shut down because of the hate-filled, bigoted, you know, whatever else she said regarding um, Christians' thoughts regarding LGBT and the homosexual community and that. That is becoming much, much more common today where we as Christians are being attacked verbally um, with some things that are true, meaning, yes, God condemns certain things. Okay? But we are being condemned for all kinds of things that are not necessarily true as well. In fact, look at what happened with Mike Johnson when he became Speaker of the House. I flipped over immediately to some of the other alternative channels, <laughs> CNN and MSDNC and some of the others, you know. And it's interesting because they were attacking him primarily on three things. One of them was that he was an extreme right-wing conservative, extreme The second was because he had a black, quote, black adopted child that they were concerned about. Some young 10-year-old or 14-year-old African-American young man who right after him and his wife got married, they brought him into the house because he was homeless. They took care of him, but they never adopted him. And somehow there's a problem with that. And so now there's all this controversy over that, you know. The third thing was that he was a Christian. And they blasted him for being a Christian. I watched one particular individual slam him because he said, well, you want to know what I believe? Look at the Bible. That's what I believe. And she tore into him the audacity of believing that book. Okay? I can think of a whole lot of other things to blast politicians for than for loving Jesus Christ. Okay? The time is coming, folks. It used to be that being a pastor was one of the number one admired position or careers in the world. Now it's down like 26, 27, 28. They're despised. So the time is coming. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Paul wrote, Be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. And he says this, Act like men. <laughs> be strong. Be firm in the faith. Paul combines both this idea of being firm in the faith with being aware of what the devil is doing in Ephesians chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to what he says starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. He's talking about a time there, folks, that's coming. The evil day. When I saw what was happening in London the other day, I thought to myself, good grief, what has happened to this world where they are praising those who are slaughtering innocent women and children and bragging about it. What's happened to our world? That is the evil day approaching, folks. And so he says, stand firm. Take up the full armor of God, verse 13, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. Having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You notice what Paul does there. He combines this idea of being, being aware and being alert of what the devil does, but also being aware of where you are in your own faith to be able to stand firm and resist what he does to cause us maybe to wander and to struggle in that faith. Do you think it's going to get hard to continue to wear that label that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you think that's going to stay easy? I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It's not going to be easy, folks. We've had it easy here. It's really easy to show up for church on a Sunday morning. The time is coming where it's not going to be easy. And we will have to learn to resist and to stand firm in that faith. I believe it's that last category there that Paul is talking about here in Colossians when he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I believe he's talking about that, remaining faithful, standing firm, remaining alert in the faith. Because that's what the whole letter's been about. Remember, we have a group of Colossians here who are thinking that Jesus wasn't enough. They had to adopt all these other things. They were falling prey to religion instead of just simple, pure faith in Jesus Christ. And that's that's what's going to be required, especially as we approach what's coming down the line. Religion won't get you there. All kinds of people who are religious and rely on their religion, who maybe even show up for church every Sunday morning, when the rubber meets the road and things get really difficult and it gets hard to call yourself a Christian, do you think their religion is going to save them? Where do you think they're going to be? We already see it today with tremendous compromise within the church where I don't want to be seen as a really bad guy, so I'll go ahead and say I'm okay with A, B, or C because I don't want to look bad. I don't want to look like a bigot. I don't want to look like I hate. I already compromised. And the heat's not even up yet. And so what we find here is Paul is challenging them. Be alert. And one of the ways to remain alert in your relationship with Jesus Christ and your faith in Him is to pray. It's to pray about it. So what's our takeaway? We need to be determined. Determined to stand firm. Not just in our faith, but the faith. There's a difference. Many people say, I have faith, but it's not the faith. So we need to remain determined to stand firm in the faith. And one of the ways we do this is by being devoted to, committed to, persistent in prayer. So we need to stay late, obviously, for Jesus' return. We need to stay alert for the attacks of the enemy. But we need to stay alert about our own faith in Jesus Christ. And where do we stand in that? I know all of you here pray for others. We do it every week. But my question to you is, how often do you specifically pray for your own faith and where you're at? Ever thought about that? I started a number of years ago praying for very specific, a certain list of things every single morning when I pray. And one of the things I pray for specifically is that I stay faithful. I would love to say I'm mature enough that it'll never happen. That I'll, But you know what? I'm not an idiot. I've seen too many people that I've respected who have deconstructed or walked away. And sometimes that shatters my conviction when it comes to eternal security, but I have to simply trust that they were likely never saved if they walked away. But the reality of it is, I believe we ought to be praying. Paul says to pray, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it. And so I pray every morning that God just keep me faithful. Help me stand firm. 
when it really gets tough, give me the words I need to say. I know a lot of us don't want to have to face persecution. We live in a country where we haven't had to. And sometimes I look at those in other countries that are facing this kind of stuff and you wonder, how do they do it? God's promises, He says, don't worry, I'll give you the words necessary. You've got my Holy Spirit. I've read stories from some of the Chinese who have been arrested and beaten and thrown into prison that have said, yeah, it was tough. I don't want to go back to that. But it was interesting, the peace that God gave me while I was there to stay firm, to stay faithful. Can't explain it, but he did it. And so I pray every day that God may do that because I don't have it in myself. I'll admit, sometimes at work when I'm talking to people and they say things that are quite contrary to the gospel and I struggle going, man, if I open my mouth, they're going to think I'm an idiot. But i got to open my mouth. <laughs> because we don't want to be embarrassed or be looked down upon. So, I think we should be praying. Devoting ourselves to prayer to keep alert, to keep faithful, to stay strong, to stay firm. Amen? Amen. How about what Paul does next? He calls on the Colossians to be determined to pray for those who preach Jesus Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4. Praying at the same time for us as well. Now notice, it's interesting that he says, pray for us as well, which means what he just told them was pray for yourselves. Devote yourselves to prayer. Your focus ought to be your own steadfastness. Now he says, pray at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I am also or which I have also been in prison that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak it's clear from these two verses that Paul saw the prayers of others as critical in the success of his own ministry of the gospel he could not have done it without their prayers he called on the Colossians to be determined to pray that God would open a door For the word, he says. He's talking about the gospel. He says specifically that he and Timothy might be able to speak the mystery of Christ. Again, a reference to the gospel. Now, think about this for a moment. Where was Paul when he was writing this? Paul was in prison. In a cell. Likely chained to a guard. And here he is saying, Okay guys, uh, you need to pray. And you might want to pray that God opens up a door so that I might continue to speak the gospel. He says, it's for what I have been bound. He literally was bound and in prison because of speaking the gospel. He says in Ephesians 6.20 that he was an ambassador in chains because he had preached the mystery of the gospel. This may be why he asked the Colossians to pray that they make it, which is the mystery of Christ, manifest in the way that he ought to speak. In other words, Paul is specifically saying, pray that I know what to say and how to say it. And again, he's chained to guards at this point. Now he was able to receive visitors. Most of those visitors were probably Christians. So he was asking that they might pray that he have the actual words to speak, but also the boldness to be able to speak. And I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul is writing Ephesians at the same time that he wrote Colossians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We'll start at verse 18. 
With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all of the saints. In other words, be on alert, pray for all of the saints. But specifically, he says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now think about this for a moment. Paul gets arrested potentially beaten, thrown into prison, locked up, put in shackles and chains, because he just had been speaking the gospel. It's time to shut up, isn't it? Man, if I just keep my mouth shut, maybe I get out. But what does Paul do? Help me open my mouth again. Help me do it here. How many of us would do that? Any of us feel like slinking away right now? How many of us would have the boldness? Maybe that's why Paul was saying, pray that I might have the boldness. You think maybe Paul, even in his own spirit, thought, man, I don't know that I've got it within me. Pray that I might. Pray that I might. And so Paul asked them specifically to pray that he might not only have the words to speak, but have the boldness to be able to do that. Paul, we see this same request in three other passages. One of them is in Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 15. Romans chapter 1, verse 15, Paul is telling the Romans that he had a desire to go to them. He says in chapter 1, verse 15, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul had this desire to go to Rome, but he had been thwarted and had not been able to complete that trip. Well, if you jump all the way now to the end of that letter, Romans chapter 15, verses 20, so go ahead and jump all the way to the end. Starting in verse 20, look at what he says. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Now here's what's interesting about this. Every place Paul went, he faced opposition. It would have been a lot easier to go back to a place where now the gospel had been established. Wouldn't it? Just go back to those churches and teach, which Paul did. But instead, Paul says, yeah, I want to go into those places where I haven't preached the gospel before, where the gospel is not known, just so I can face some more beatings, some more abuse, some more persecution. I'm looking forward to that. No, not really. I'm being facetious. But the reality of it is, Paul wanted to go where the gospel had not been preached, into a pagan world where he knew the kind of opposition he would face. And so, basically, he asked them to pray. Go back down to verse 20 again. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, those who had, or um, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who had not heard shall understand. For this reason I have not been prevent, or I have been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, come to you, whether I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. When I have first enjoyed your company for a little while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so that they are indeed indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual offer, spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on the fruit of others, I will go on by way of Spain, to you. So basically, Paul's kind of a long way to say, 
I wanted to come to Rome. I haven't been able to come to Rome. I still want to come to Rome. I'm hoping that after I leave Jerusalem, that maybe I can come see you in Rome. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be rescued from those who are in disobedience in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Get what he did there? Again, I want to go to Rome. haven't been able to go to Rome. I still want to go to Rome, but I need help getting there. Commit yourselves to prayer on my behalf. And why? So that he could preach the gospel in Rome so that he could preach the gospel in Rome. There's two other instances that Paul requests prayer like this. You don't have to turn here, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he says, Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, Pray for us that the, Lord, or that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and is glorified. So the prayers of the saints were important to Paul in his own ministry. He saw that he needed them to pray for his ministry to help to promote and to preach the gospel of Christ. He prayed for boldness, or he asked for them to pray that he might have boldness, that he might have the words to speak, that he may open up doors for the gospel. Paul was dependent upon their prayers. We are called to pray for those like Paul. Takeaway, we should be determined to pray for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. We ought to be determined to pray for the preaching of the gospel of Christ. We should be praying for God to send out workers. Jesus himself said that we should pray that God would send out workers into the harvest. We should be praying for pastors, missionaries, evangelists, those who have devoted their lives to preaching the gospel, not just here but abroad. Asking God to open up doors for them, to give them boldness, to help them speak the mysteries of Christ. We should be praying for those who continue to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel all over the world. Asking God to give them boldness, not just to protect them, but to give them boldness to continue speaking boldly while being persecuted. We should pray for one another. We should pray that we each get opportunity. Maybe it's to preach the gospel. Maybe it's to simply be a blessing. Maybe it's to simply be able to give account of the hope that we have within us. We should be praying for one another. I would ask, why would we not be devoted to this, considering what Christ has done for us? You know, it's, I've told you before, I am not an evangelist by gifting. I've struggled with many parts of my life um, with being an evangelist even at heart, meaning I would go days, weeks, months without even wondering if I'd get an opportunity to share the gospel or even really caring if I did. And I kind of wrote that off as, oh, that's not the way God has gifted me. He's called some as pastors, some as teachers. Well, that's mine. And some as evangelists, that's not me. But the more I've grown in my relationship with Christ and continue to look through the scriptures, and I realize that I don't get an out just because I'm not a gifted evangelist. I know guys that can lead a rock to Christ. I know guys in seminary that would come in every single week talking about some guy they led to Christ. I can't use it as an excuse to say I'm not gifted that way. I'm told that I am supposed to be a light in a dark world. I was told by Christ not to hide my light under a bushel basket. I don't get an out. None of us get an out. And so we should be determined to pray. Now I mentioned to you one of the things I pray for every morning is just my own faithfulness. second thing I started praying for a number of years ago um, 
is for opportunity to share the gospel. And so I do every morning. God, open up a door somewhere. I'm going to Kansas this week. So my prayer has been, Lord, I'm going to Kansas this week. Give me an opportunity. Somewhere, some way, maybe he will. Maybe he won't. I routinely share about opportunities I get at work. I've shared about this young man at work, Duke, that I've been spending some time with. We had a great two-hour lunch on Tuesday. Amazing conversation. Got deep in the gospel. What a blessing that was to be able to do that. God opened the door. I was praying as I was driving down. I'm like, Lord, you direct the conversation here because, you know, I don't want him to think that I only want to meet with him to talk about spiritual things. I don't. I like just hanging out with him too. But I want an opportunity to talk spiritual things. And I'm like, how do I get there? i got some questions in mind, things we can do that maybe we'll... You know what, we sat down, and before I could even ask him a question, he said, so tell me, what kind of Christian are you? Just like that. Two hours, we talked. Okay? I find that when I pray for those opportunities, God doesn't disappoint. And so I think that as believers, we ought to be praying that way. I think we ought to be praying that God gives us opportunities... Now, maybe you're not the theologian or the evangelist, but you can certainly pray for opportunity that others might see Christ in you and that it may give you an opportunity even just to say things as simple as, I love Christ, you know? We can become a very attractive people to an unsaved world. While they may hate us, we can also be very attractive sometimes when they see genuine faith in us. And if we're not praying that God would use that in us, then I don't believe we're praying. And so, one of the things that Paul does here is he tells us to be determined to pray for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means we should not just be praying for others. We ought to be praying for each other here, but we ought to be praying for ourselves and say, Lord, give me that opportunity. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I I, I feel anxious about it sometimes. Take that away and give me those opportunities to do that. The last thing that Paul does here in this passage for us is is that he calls on the Colossians and therefore us to be determined to live as a testimony to Jesus Christ. What an interesting bridge that is, going from what we just talked about to now living as a testimony of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So he moves on from praying for those who preach the gospel to the Colossians being determined to live themselves as that testimony. He says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom or in wisdom toward outsiders. Do you notice the emphasis on wisdom in this book? Let's just do a real quick rundown. Go back to Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. Whoops. Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and in all wisdom, spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prayed that they might be filled with all of God's wisdom. Jump down to verse 28. He says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul says we've been 
admonishing every man with wisdom. Why? So they might be perfect, mature, complete in Jesus Christ. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 3. He says, In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jump down to chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing every one, each one, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. You notice the theme of wisdom there? So Paul basically tells them to conduct themselves with wisdom toward outsiders. You know, we ought to be the wisest people on this planet. Should we not? We ought to be the wise. We've been taught and instructed and given the wisdom of God. We ought to now take that wisdom and use that wisdom to shape how we respond, not just to one another, but to those outside the church. That's who he's referring to here. He says, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. He tells on them to put wisdom into practice and to conduct themselves with wisdom to those outside the church. Now, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. You want a picture of what this really looks like? Let's put some feet on this. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us what it looks like to walk with wisdom toward outsiders. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Hold on a minute, let me actually get there. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice. So to conduct ourselves in wisdom means that we are to be imitators of God. I've never been a real big fan of that phrase, what would Jesus do, because I don't think a lot of people know what Jesus would do. (laughs) It's kind of like, what would Jesus do? I think what Jesus would do, and you know. But there's some truth to that. We should behave like Jesus would behave. And so the first thing Paul tells us here, walking with wisdom towards outsiders, is to be imitators of God and to walk in love. Just like God loved us, we should love them as well. To conduct ourselves with wisdom means that we don't engage in sin like the rest of the world. Look at what he says in verses 3 through, uh, three through I think it's uh, 7. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in all the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be participants or partakers with them. You know, my heart breaks. I subscribe to this. Um, she's basically all online. Julie Roy's is her name. She's a, basically a journalist, a very well-respected journalist. One of the struggles I have with subscribing to her blog and seeing some of her stuff is she focuses on failures within the church. And so article after article after article focuses on the moral failings of spiritual leaders. The reason I struggle with that is it's heartbreaking she could not publish enough. I hate to see that kind of stuff, but the reality of it is it's getting worse and worse and worse within the church. Not only are pastors and shepherds acting much like the world, many of the sheep are as well. I've been saved now since 1984, and I don't remember a time quite like this where it is daily, weekly, 
that reports of people acting just like the world coming out of the church, famous, popular Christian leaders and teachers. and It's heart-wrenching. We're not supposed to be like that. And what does that do for the witness of the church? When we behave and act like the world, we're not walking with wisdom toward outsiders. We ought to be saying, man, I've got to be careful with the way I behave. It darkens the name of Jesus Christ. It destroys my witness as well. And so he says, to walk in wisdom means we are not participants or partakers with them. We're wiser than that. We're smarter than that. To conduct ourselves in wisdom means that we would recognize that we are no longer children of darkness, but children of light. Look at verses 8 through 10. For you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness of truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, is that our goal? One of the ways to walk with wisdom among outsiders is to walk in a way that we're trying to figure out what's pleasing to the Lord. He tells us an awful lot of that, but then we have to put that feet in practice and work it out. And so we're supposed to not be participants with them. We're not supposed to walk as children of the darkness anymore. He goes on to conduct ourselves in wisdom means that we understand when the light of Christ shines through our good behavior, it exposes the works of darkness. You want to expose the works of darkness? We don't just preach against it. We live in opposition to it. That's the reality of it. Look at verses 11 through 14. He says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Oftentimes we think that's just verbal. No, he's talking about behavior here. How do we expose them? Well, we don't engage in it. He says, Expose them. For it is a disgrace even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But the things done become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In other words, we ought to be the contrast of what we see in the world. We ought to stand out because we don't do the things that the world does. But you know, I was reading a stat the other day that talked about sexual immorality within the church. And something like 90% of Christians now live together prior to marriage. That's just routine. Just routine. No big deal. Now, I don't know how accurate that stat is, but I'm not even going to argue it. Because it wouldn't shock me if that's completely true. That's just the reality of it. We don't stand out. Andy Stanley just had this huge LGBTQ conference that just celebrated homosexuality within the church. We embrace it? No, I'm not saying we ought to be out there preaching on the street corner against it, but we certainly shouldn't be embracing it. We ought to live in opposition to that. You know, bless my daughter Kimberly's heart. You know, she loves the LGBT community, but she doesn't embrace it. She's not afraid to tell the friends she has. She doesn't agree with her lifestyle, but she loves them like Christ, all in the hopes that she gets the opportunity. And she's brought some to church. In fact, what was interesting is when she was at the Ark Encounter, one of her concerns, she said, Dad, I don't know that I want to go down to the Ark for the summer. I'm leaving behind these LGBT friends, and there's a couple of them that are just so close to coming to church with me, and I don't think they'll do that if I go away. So she gets down there, and all of a sudden she gets exposed to all the teaching and stuff from, from uh, the Ark and from Answers in Genesis, helping to minister to that community. And God amazingly, one of her closest friends down there, confided in Kimberly that she struggled with attraction to women. But she knew it was wrong. And she became one of Kimberly's close friends down there. There is a way to love that community without embracing that community. 
And the way we love ought to expose the problems with that community. And that's just one. But the reality of it is, it's our behavior, the way we conduct ourselves, that exposes the darkness. Not just our words. And you know what? It makes it very difficult if we try to condemn certain things, but we live like it ourselves. We have to live in righteousness. Live like children of the light, it says here. Another way to conduct ourselves with wisdom among outsiders is that we take advantage of opportunities to walk as light. Look at verse 15 and 16. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. We ought to be making the most of the opportunities we have to live in a righteous, Christ-like way. We can't waste that time. The last thing he says is to conduct ourselves in wisdom means that we aren't to be foolish. Look at what he says in verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know, folks, when we just go about our daily lives and we live our lives like the world in many respects, that's foolish. It's plain foolishness. It means we don't understand the times we're in. We don't understand what's coming down the pipe. We don't understand that those around us, God is expecting us to be a light to them, to lead them to Christ and out of their darkness. We are fools when we don't recognize that. And we just choose to live our lives and, eh, eh, little issues don't matter. Little sin things don't matter. It does matter. It matters significantly. And we're fools if we don't believe that. And so Paul gives us this great picture of what it means to walk with wisdom among the outsiders here from Ephesians 5. But now jump back to Colossians. Colossians chapter 4 again. He tells us, notice in the second half of verse 5, making the most of the opportunity. Making the most of the opportunity. Some of your translations may say buying back or purchasing or even redeeming the time. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 5 to redeem the time because the days are evil. In essence, what Paul is saying is that prior to coming to Christ, um, we lived a certain way. And that time is all lost. And in many respects... All that time was a waste. Why? Because God created us for righteousness. And so that time could have been used for righteousness. But because we chose to live it as unsaved people, because we chose to live it according to the world, it was wasted time. It was lost time. But now that we're saved, we have an opportunity to redeem the time that's left. To buy it back. To make it of use. And so he tells us here that what we ought to be doing is conducting ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders by making the most of the opportunity we now have left while we're here and before Christ returns. And so that ought to be what we're doing. We ought to look at the time that's left and think there's not a whole lot of time left. What can we do to buy it back, to make it worthwhile? What can we do within this time to accomplish what Christ wants for his church to accomplish? One of the areas Paul focused on specifically in this regard was how they spoke and how they responded to unbelievers. Look at what he says there. He says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will be known, or that you will know how you ought to respond to each person. There's three traits that Paul mentions here. And we'll finish up our section or our time this morning with these things. Our words are to always be filled with grace. Our words are always to be filled with grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It means they don't deserve it. This means that sometimes we respond in a way that they don't deserve, but we still respond with grace anyway. I think about my comments about Jane Austen. Was it Jane? No, not Jane Austen. Who is it? Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, as wicked and as his words were, it does not necessitate that we don't respond back with grace. 
Um, Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome talk, unwholesome word, proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Which means that we are always to speak with grace to those outside the church. Vitriol, hate-filled speech, vulgar language, it's all unnecessary. That's hard though, because sometimes we want to respond in kind. Mom always taught us that you know, when we were working at the lake, when people would berate us and yell and scream at us as lifeguards, we weren't to respond in kind. Instead, be kind, be gracious. And she said, oftentimes what will happen is they'll be so embarrassed by their behavior, they'll start apologizing to you. And you know what? Oftentimes she was right. <laughs> Sometimes they did. Second thing he says here is our words that are always be seasoned with salt. Now in the ancient Near East, um, the idea of talking with salt meant that it was flavorful. It was something that was used to encourage or to, to win somebody to your thinking. Here we think of salty speech as the opposite. But back in Paul's day, the Hebrews used the metaphor of salt in speech meant to be speaking with wisdom, words that were, would convince somebody, draw them to you. And so we ought to be using speech that draws people towards us. And he's again talking about outsiders here. I try to practice that as much as I can when I'm at work. I told you about this instance um, too when I visited Amy over at OSU about Candy who was not very kind out of the gate and I kind of went into overdrive and tried to use my language to win her over and by the time we were done she was smiling and um, I think we left a fairly favorable opinion but she even asked me, oh you're the pastor guy, right? Okay. Maybe her opinion of Pastor Mike was a very positive, uplifting one now. Why? Because I went out of my way instead of just responding and saying, Look, lady, your job is to serve me and you're being nasty. Instead, I took her nastiness, massaged it, played around a little bit, tried to encourage her to where I finally got a smile out of her. And she had a positive opinion of Pastor Mike. Now, it wasn't for my sake as much as it was God says, Speak with salt. Season your words. And so I seasoned my words. Finally, Paul says that our words are to be appropriate for each individual in each situation. That's what it means when he says so that you might know how you should answer each person. Not every response is appropriate for every individual in every circumstance. I'll give you a great example. If somebody is very aggressive and and they're very pointed and blunt, sometimes you just simply need to be very pointed and direct with them. But you can do it with grace. They may not respond to anything else. Others are very soft, very sensitive. And so you can't be overbearing and powerful and just point at them. You know, some people can be told, hey, you're just wrong. This is sin, brother. Others, you have to be a little more careful. Hey, do you realize this is sin? Have you thought about that? See, we have to know how to respond to other people. Well, we've got the wisdom of Christ. Ask Christ to help us. But that's important in our witness with others. We have to know how to respond to different circumstances and situations so that we ultimately, the goal will be to be able to win them to Christ. So what's our takeaway with this? And we'll, we'll close with this. We should be determined to live as witnesses of Jesus Christ. That's plain and simple. Many of us have had plenty of time to walk in darkness. Some of us were unsaved for a good portion of our life. That time was wasted. And what I mean by that is it didn't accomplish anything for Christ specifically it wasn't used for the sake of the gospel but fortunately God chose to save us and now gives us time to redeem to use for his benefit Matthew chapter 5 verse 14 Jesus says you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand and it gives light to all those who are in the house 
Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. One of the ways we can do this is how we walk and talk and respond to those outside the church. Always remembering that our words are to be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, and appropriate for each circumstance and situation. So, we are to be determined for all of these things. That is our goal. We are now in Christ. Our faith in Christ alone mandates that we be determined in these things. Amen?